What is up, everybody? This is Gratitude Unfiltered, and I am your host, Joshua T. Berglund. I am just really, really excited today uh, about our guest. This has been a long time coming, and it's something that I'm truly, I feel honored, I feel blessed, um, and I just, it's one of those things, man. It, it, when you hear, when you see people that are just doing big things in the world and at the same time have the attitude of serving, um, you know, not only they're, they're successful, not only, you know, empowering other people, but truly have a heart for humanity and making a difference in the world. Those are the kind of people that I want to be like. And, you know, I've been very, very blessed. I have, I have an amazing mentor. Um, and I got to tell you, like, the more I have learned about our guest, I am just like, how do I make this guy my mentor too? <laughs> I love what he's doing. I love what he's creating in the world. And I'm honestly, I'm just excited to get to know him. Um, you guys, listen, this is, um, as always, you know, you guys are a part of the show. Feel free to ask questions. Um, radio audience, podcast audience, and of course, TV audience. You guys, you can join us live at facebook.com slash gratitude unfiltered. You can join in and ask questions. Um, this is going to be amazing. And I'm truly, truly honored to have our guest on. And to be honest with you, uh, when I was first introduced to him, I was given his number to reach out about him being on my show. Um, I, I had only seen him speak a couple times. And I was just like, who is this guy? He's like a freaking superhero. I mean, he's, he's big, and I'm like, okay, I want, I want his workout plan, I want his diet, but I had no idea he was such a tender-hearted, passionate guy, and so this is a real honor for me because I, you know, as I've discussed on the show multiple times, I had no male influences growing up, and to have somebody of this stature and someone that is a man's man be here on the show is such an honor, but also I think it's it's good to have role models that are doing the right thing. It's good to have role models that are out to try to change the world. And our next guest is that guy. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a, an absolute honor to the point that I can't even put a sentence together right now to welcome Mr. Ed Milet to Gratitude Unfiltered. Wow. Mr. Milet, wow. welcome to the show. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you. And the honor is 100% mine. So what a great introduction. I hope I can get a recording of that play back for my kids so they can figure this out. <laughs> well, I walk in the I, house, they'll feel that way. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, this is really, really cool for me. And I, I, I was digging in some of your archives from some old videos um, over the last few weeks. And I'm just, I'm really, really blown away. But before we get started on this interview, I would love to ask you, what are you most grateful for today? Uh, I'm, I, that's a great question. Uh, I, I'm most grateful for my faith that I know that there's a God in heaven. And so I'm most grateful for that. And, uh, and a close second, but, uh, but not, but not first, but close second would obviously be my family. I have an amazing family I have a tremendous wife that I met in kindergarten. And, uh, yeah, I met my wife in kindergarten. And so I'm 48. So I've known my wife 43 years. Uh, and then I've got two incredible kids that she does most of the work with so that's what, definitely what I'm most grateful for I, I you know I and I love that and I want to get into the family dynamic because you're obviously out you're a world changer you're making things happen and I, I learned about your uh, your many days yeah I'm, I'm so fascinated by this but one of the things that I was thinking about I've heard you say before in some of your videos about life happens for us not to us can you tell us about the time in your life when you shifted from, oh my God, life, this is happening to me, I'm this is a disaster, oh my God, why me, why me? And then shifting from that to, this happened for me. Yeah, what a great question, and thank you. I really do appreciate all the kind words. Yes, I do know what it was. My, uh, the, the quick version is, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. I grew up in a loving family, but just dysfunctional. So, um, if you know uh, my story, my dad was an alcoholic when I was young. He's sober now. He's my best friend. In fact, I just talked to him before we went on air. Uh, but when I was young, he was an alcoholic. And so uh, I used to think that was happening to our family. 
you know, most, you know, all of us probably have some secret in our family that we're not, you know, proud of. Everyone thinks your family's perfect, but behind the door, we all know otherwise. And, um, I, yeah, my dad got sober and I was unemployed. I had my baseball career was over and I had come home from college and I was losing and I was sleeping in the same bed I grew up in, same posters on the wall, you know, and my dad came home from an AA meeting. He had just gotten sober and he said, I got you a job tomorrow. Show up in San Dimas at McKinley home for boys. And I'm like, what the heck is a McKinley home for boys? He goes, I have no idea, but there's a guy at the meeting who says he's got you a job. I said, what's his name? He says, Tim. I go there the next morning at 6 a.m. I show up. I say, I'm Eddie Milet. I'm here for the job. And they say, uh, what job? I said, I don't know. My dad told me to show up. And they go, well, you need to know a little bit more than that. And what McKinley is, I later found out, is a group home campus. So it's an orphanage, basically, for young boys. All of the boys were removed from their family. Their parents were incarcerated, dead, or had molested them. Yeah. So these are some really boys that go through some difficult times. And finally, I'm leaving. They go, we'll come back when you know the job. And I said, well, the guy's name's Tim. And I'm like, they said, there's a lot of Tims here. And as I grab the door to leave, I go, well, uh, I think he's an alcoholic because he was with my dad last night at a meeting. And they go, oh, drunk Tim, that's Cottage 8. And I'm like, okay. And I walk into Cottage 8, and the moment hit me. I walked in the door. There's 10 boys in there running around getting ready for school. All of them kind of disheveled. And in that minute, I met those boys. They stopped and looked at me. And in that moment, all of them have eyes. All kids who come from a little bit of abuse or dysfunction, we have different eyes. Those eyes looked back at me, these little beautiful boys. They just wanted somebody to love them, to believe in them, to mentor them. And in that instant, I realized my dad's drinking happened for me on multiple levels. One, it got me this job. Two, if I didn't come from a family of dysfunction, I would have never connected with these boys. I would have never understood what it was like to have all that anxiety and fear as a child because I lived with it. And in that moment, I went, my God, like it flooded me. I went, all of this crap happened for this reason. And I'm supposed to be here with these young boys. And I spent a couple years there. I wish I stayed forever. And I've not changed what I do since that day. All I did with those boys, I was like their brother or their dad. I was there for Christmas, holidays, when they came home from school, when they got in a disagreement at school. They just wanted someone to love and believe in them and mentor them. I still do that to this day. I just do it with politicians, athletes, entertainers, and business people at a high level. But it's my career doing what I do started with eight to 10-year-old boys who had no dad and no mom. And just wanted that. And so that in that instant, I went, wow, even the worst things happen for us, not to us. Were you already doing some personal development work to, to be able to shift like that? Because that seems almost immediate. Great question. Yeah, I had. I had been introduced to Tony Robbins about six months before that. Oh, wow. And I was working on myself. But it was more of like, you know, and that contributed to it. But in that moment, I always carried with me the shame of what happened in our house, even though it wasn't. There was no real abuse in my home. It was just anxiety. It was just difficult. I didn't, the other thing that happened for me, ironically, is one of the things I do when I mentor and coach people is I have to assess them very quickly, right? Because especially with an athlete, I get a PGA golfer or a UFC fighter. I got about five minutes for them to go, man, this guy knows what he's doing. I've got to make a quick assessment. And that skill happened for me, not to me. My dad would walk through the front door. And as a five-year-old, I can remember assessing which dad just walked in. Was it dad sober and happy, or was it drunk dad, mad dad, angry dad, worried dad, and I'd quickly make these assessments as a little boy. And that ability to assess people, just to be cognizant of assessing people and being aware of people happened for me and not to me, and I probably wouldn't have those skills had my dad not, and my dad's been, like I said, sober 30 years, he's my hero. One of the reasons he's my hero is he got sober for our family. But at that time, it had just started. And so, yeah, I think part of it was the personal development. A lot of it was just that moment. There'll be a moment, and there's always that moment, by the way. In all of our lives, in hindsight, when we look back on the worst things, we go, that happened for me. That changed me. I got out of that relationship. I made that decision. I had this understanding that I didn't have before. I learned something. I got tougher. I became more resilient. I had a breakthrough. So everything always happens for us and not to us in hindsight. That was one of the rare moments in my young life at about 21 years old where I knew it in the moment. And that was pretty powerful. That's awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned you're a man of faith. We shared that. I'm a follower of Christ. Um, I can see the spirit and, on you, brother. And I don't mean that in a corny way. There's just a goodness about your spirit. Even when we've texted with each other, that doesn't surprise me at all. 
Well, th- thank you. It's it saved me from we. It, this is not about me right now, but okay. I um, one of the things as a follower of Christ that I really have loved to embrace is n- nourishing my spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. And how would you say that you? What's your favorite way to use your spiritual gift? Oh my gosh, what a tr- no one's ever asked me that before. I can tell you the confirmation of my faith is um, happens all the time. Uh, and one of the confirmations is the some of this, the external success I've had. And so I love to express my faith and my, my spirituality this way. I'll, I'll tell you. I think God gives us big dreams in our life. Yes. He sows big dreams into our heart because he knows that inevitably you will reach a point where your preparation, your learning, your education, your talents, your skills will not be enough. Mm. And you'll reach that point if you're going to do something great and in that moment you're going to look beyond just you for the answers for the hope for the strength for the comfort and so for me it's the biggest dreams in my life that have been the greatest thing that's drawn me closest to God is because I know I'm a sinner saved by God's grace I know my deficiencies I know I'm not the strongest guy the smartest guy the best looking guy the tallest guy in the world I don't have tons of gifts that way and so my success is evidence there must be a powerful God. There must be a great God who loves us, who believes in us. And I really do. Like, my business partner is God. My business partner is Jesus Christ. Like, I I pray about it all the time. I, I always feel bad for people of faith. And I, I don't know how much faith we're going to tell here, but I always feel we bad. We talk about Jesus all day long on this show. Okay, cool. Awesome. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that, that is shocking to me, it always has been, is people that I know that have tremendous faith and they walk with the Lord in lots of areas of their life. I'm not just talking about the Sunday spiritual people. I'm talking about the good people that listen to your show. So they carry the Lord past church. They carry the Lord in their home and in their family and and in and, and the difficult times in their life. And they acknowledge God when good things happen. But very few people carry God into business with them. Very few people do it. It's almost like I'm on my own there because that's about making money. And so God clearly wouldn't want that to happen for me. God clearly wouldn't want me to have increase or abundance because, man, if I had money, I might even grow the kingdom of God. I might grow the body of Christ. I, I, I could tithe more. He certainly doesn't want any of that, right? So it's this delusion most people have that they think they're on their own in business. And every other area of life, they're not on their own. But when it comes to business, they are. For me, that's not the case. He's with me every step of the way. He was with me when I, when, he was with me before I was born. He was with me when I took my first step. He was with me when I would when I was five and my dad would walk through the front door. He was with me the day I walked through McKinley. He was with me when I made my first million. He was with me when I bought a jet. He's with me and you right now. So he's with me constantly. I don't lose him because I'm in business. And that'd be something I just have everybody just consider for themselves. Why don't you bring the ultimate business partner with you? Because he's got the good words. He'll make the great introductions. He's going to give you the strength. He's going to give you the resiliency. He's going to flood you with gratitude. You're going to have the Holy Spirit on you and feel comfort almost all the time when these bad things happen, when a client changes their mind or you have a setback or a hater or someone who doubts you. I know this. I got a lot of doubters. My father in heaven never doubts me. Mm. He never doubts me. He's always got my back. He believes in me. It's hard to imagine. He loves me more than I love my own children. That's almost impossible to imagine, yet it's true. So, God, that's amazing. So, okay. So when we're like when we're all starting out and we're struggling, we're trying to climb up the mountain, we're trying to make it, we're pursuing our dreams or our God dream mm-hmm. because I believe that God, those dreams, and you you talked about this a little bit, those dreams that you get, those daydreams of you seeing yourself, you know, whether it's flying a jet or speaking on stages in front of millions of people, those that, that's not God teasing you. That's God showing you what's possible. Right. But you're listening to these motivational and you're listening to pastors, you're listening to people like T.D. Jakes, you're listening to people like yourself. What happens when you are that person that people listen to? Who do you go to for inspiration outside of the Bible? Because we've clarified that. Yeah. Outside of Jesus. Yeah, I do go there an awful lot. So I go there an awful lot. I, I just want to be candid with you. In fact, like, before I call my dad, I walk downstairs on my kitchen uh, counter. Most people wouldn't know this about me. I don't talk about it enough on my content. There's Bibles all over my house. So that is where I go. Having said that, though, I will say that um, I'm obsessed with who I surround myself with. And so I've had the unbelievable blessing of having many people in my life that I sought out who saw something in me 
that I didn't see in myself. And I constantly seek out these mentors. So I've had the blessing of, you know, Sly Stallone being in my life for 20 years. I've had Phil Knight in my life. I've had Jerry West in my life. I've had Tony Robbins in my life for 20 years. And that list is enormous. And not all of them are people, you know, I have a board of directors. And so I have business people I surround myself with. That's my board of directors. And I have my spiritual brothers. I do. Some of them you don't know by name, but they walk with God better than I do. They hold me accountable there. I model them. So but from a business standpoint, I've always sought out a higher level of association. Uh, Mozilla, who ran Countrywide for a long time, uh, a friend of mine. And so a lot of these people have been just dear, dear friends of mine. And it's, but one people ask me, how'd you meet these people? How, how do they end up? It's reciprocity. I had to bring something to the table. You can't just say, well, you mentioned me. There's got to be something you can give in return. And in each of their cases, they felt like there was something I brought to their life that was unique, whether it was my love and belief or my counsel on their mental game or um, my, my true concern for them. Like when it started out, I didn't have anything to offer Tony Robbins, except <laughs> he saw some talent in me. But I think I, I separated myself with most people because I did what he told me to do. So when Tony would coach me, I'd come back and go, I did. He goes, you're kidding me. I say that to 100 people. Nobody does it. You did it. And so it built this reciprocity to where now it, our relationships move to the most influential type of relationship, which is not mentor it's friend and friend has the most influence proximity does right so if you have children they're teachers or their mentors they certainly guide and sculpt their lives we want them to have great teachers but what we most concern ourselves with are who their friends are because we know who they're hanging around is who they really become when they're in high school or grade school and so i've tried to turn my mentors into friends because then we really have influence over each other and i'm conscious of that as well so that's amazing. The one thing, I've been very blessed to have people come in my life that have helped me. They've opened doors. I mean, no one's ever given me a handout, but they've you know, provided an opportunity. They've given me a stage to speak on. They've given me you know, mentorship and wisdom. The one area that I'm lacking that I desperately want and I've been praying about a lot is finding a spiritual mentor. Mm -hmm. Because it's really easy for me to start wanting to go back to my, you know, the, the ego-fed ways of being. You know, and, and, and I and I don't want that life, but sometimes our brain gets in the way, that chatter. But let me ask you something. As, as somebody that, you know, you are at a, a level of success that a lot of people only dream about being at. I know you're not done yet, but you're at that level. Mm -hmm. At that level where you're at now, life still happens on life's terms. <laughs> you share with us some of the the maybe, I don't know if struggle is the right word, but some of the battles that you have to face that you get or you really get to face at this level and how you overcome them. Yeah. You're a tremendous interviewer. Um, wow. Yes. I, well, life happens to me too. So my dad, who I just was telling you I talked about, the reason that we were talking is my dad's got cancer. And um, he's got you know tumors kind of in a lot of different places in his body. And what we were talking about was he took a new chemo drug that he's rejected. And so we were deciding whether to get off this drug and go on to another one. So I have the normal problems that everybody has in a family. One of the great things about having some wealth or abundance is I don't ever worry whether they're getting the best care, whether they see the best doctors, whether they have all the options at their disposal. So that's a blessing. Um, I have, uh, I think, a self-induced uh, problem for me that I struggle with is uh, which is a good thing. It, it, my, my, my wife would tell you that maybe it's not so good all the time, but I really care. Like I really want to help people. And so as my exposure's grown and now there's millions of people who listen to what I say or come to see me speak or interact with my, my program or my podcast or what have you, it's probably the anxiety that I'm not helping enough. It's, um, it's a, a, a real worry that I struggle with that I'm letting people down that I'm not doing well enough, that I'm not contributing enough. It's odd. I didn't know that part of my insecurity existed until I got to a higher level. It wasn't something I struggled with prior. It's new. It's a new form of what I'd call anxiety that I have. I also um, am, I, I, we all have patterns that we need to be aware of in order to fix them. Once you're aware of a pattern, it loses at least half of its power over you. And one of my patterns, candidly, is that I worry. I'm a worrier. Um, and I know we shouldn't label ourselves that way. In fact, it's one of the things I teach. Um, but I have a pattern and a history of finding things to worry about. Like, no matter how good everything is, what's the thing I should be worried about right now? 
And so uh, that's a pattern I'm aware of that I've done a great job the majority of my life of keeping at bay because I think some of these things are the adversary at bay always attacks like, how do I get to my left? How do I get to Ed? I can't really get at him financially. You know, he's got a great family. So I'm going to get at him with this worry thing. And so I see it when it's coming. And so the more bigger your life gets, John Elway and I were talking about this, who's a pretty good friend of mine for a long time. And I've told him many times, he has such a big life. He's was an NFL Super Bowl winning quarterback. He's got a family. He's got car dealerships. He's got other businesses. He has friends all over the place. He's the general manager of the Denver Broncos. Like he has a big life. And he'll say back to me, you've got a big life too, man. And I'm like, I do. And it's it's sometimes the bigger it gets, you know, that old Biggie Small song, Mo Money, Mo Problems, right? That's not always true, but sometimes bigger problems. Sure. And so for me, it's not uh, feeding it with worry because worry is a sin, right? And worry comes from ego. The ego show up. I did a podcast on it this week. Ego shows up in ways we don't even really imagine. We always think people think ego is confidence. It's not. Ego is the lack of confidence. Ego is removing God and putting yourself out there. It's your insecurities that cause you to lead with ego. And my ego play is worry. That's what I do. I don't, I'm not real braggadocious necessarily. I'm not one of these people who thinks he's made it and I got it all figured out. I don't have that ego issue where I think I'm better than people because I know I'm not. I, my ego issue is worry. That's where it shows up for me. So I like for me, I have a lot of goals and it's amazing that you're sharing this because it just seems like you would have a bulletproof vest around you in the sports field and you're just guiding through life. Like I got no worries. And yet you do, you worry. Unfreaking believable. Um, one of the things that I've always struggled with in the past in my previous relationships and now going into a new one and wanting to start a family and do these things as I'm pursuing my career and pursuing my dreams of being a, you know, a talk show host. Um, this is something I've dreamed about as a child and somehow through technology made it happen a year and seven months ago. Like it's, it's still unbelievable to me. And, but this is what I love doing more than anything. And yet while doing that, there's the social media responsibilities, you know, you're responding and you're gauging, you're very engaging with your audience um, from what I've seen and heard you talk about. But when you have so many people wanting your attention, how do you balance that and being a, I know you're more than an influencer, but I mean, how do you, being a person of influence, how do you balance that? And yet at the same time, keeping your wife happy because you've been together since you were in kindergarten right. and, and your children happy. Like, how are you balancing both? And also the second part of that question is how much is too information to put out in the world? Like, do you keep your family stuff private from the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. And is that part of the deal? Well, great question. So, um, one, I uh, do struggle with it. It's something I struggle with. I'm not uh, interested in balance. Uh, I think balance is boredom. I think, it's a, I think it's a fallacy. If everything were balanced in your life, you'd be bored. Things are supposed to spike in life, up and down. It's these contrasts that give us the most juice in our life. So, I'm not seeking balance, but I also don't want to be deficient in areas that matter the most to me. And so, my, uh, and I have struggled with this. And so, I, I've built tools about it and I talk about it a great deal. Yes, uh, the key for me is this. This seems very simple, but it's not. It's the most difficult thing to do in the world right now because of the distractions. I am present where I am. So the reason that we feel like we're letting people down is that when we're with our family, we're thinking about work and we're not present. We're on our phone. The worst message I've ever sent my children were the times when they walked into a room and I didn't look up from my phone when they walked in. And that immediately tells that child, what's on this phone is more important than you. And if you do that repeatedly, they begin to know, they begin to feel as if they're not important. So I'd watch myself do this. So for me now, I'm present. When I'm at work, I'm working. When I'm at home, I'm with my family and I don't work. That doesn't mean I don't disappear into my office at home and get work done. But I am present where I am. Uh, one key for me now is because I do spend a lot of hours on, on, on work outside of my family is that it's just a little tip I've done. I could not control myself with my phone because that phone is right now as I'm talking to you, it's blowing up right now as I'm watching, right? And so what I do when I walk in my home now is I, I actually physically leave my phone in the car the first 30 minutes when I get into the home. It's in my car. So when I walk through the front door, dad's home. What's up, guys? How was school? 
Oh, what's going on? I sit down. I spend time. I'm completely present. There's no device to distract me. And once they've got my presence, quite frankly, my kids get enough of dad and they're like, okay, I got a dad. You love me. You believe in me. I got things to do too, right? Depending upon the age of your children. And then I will go get back and get my phone. I've, I've learned that um, this is a hard one for me too. I love to use my phone in bed. Mm. So when I'm with my, I'm in bed, I'm, you know, and I've just learned there's one other place where I don't touch my telephone and that's in bed because my wife's laying there next to me. We're watching television together. And the worst thing I was doing over and over again, she's like, are you listening to me? Yeah, babe, I'm listening to you. And I'm texting, right? Or I'm doing an email because we all work from convenient places. And yeah. so I'm present where I am. It's a huge shift for me. It's brought all kinds of, and by the way, I'm better in those places. I'm better at work when I'm not feeling bad. I'm missing my family. It's guilt that is what's ruining it. It's like it, when you're at work, you're like, I didn't invest the time when I was with the kids and my wife, so now I feel guilty when I'm at work or, I, or I'm at the gym. I don't get a full workout in because I'm texting business stuff when I'm on the treadmill, whatever those things are. So for me, it's be present where you are because you're not going to find balance. You don't want it anyways, but it's the device you have. It's the distraction of life and it's mainly your phone that's the big one that's destroying you and I just realized this also um, it's okay if I don't get back to somebody it's just I, my, I, thought, I can't believe I'm saying that out loud because it's so counter to who I am sure. but it's okay if it takes me an extra hour it's okay I'm one of these people like I have to get back to everyone because I'm gonna worry I didn't if it's not off the list yeah. But I realized my life is a never-ending loop now. I'm not going to get back to everybody because by the time I get back to them, there's somebody else. And so I work when I work. I'm with family when I'm a family. I'm in church when I'm at church. I'm at the gym when I'm at the gym. I love that. So I want you to tell everybody about the many days just in case if uh, they're not familiar with this philosophy you have. And then I want you to also explain where you fit your quiet time into that. Sure. So um, I am become a very hyperproductive person. And the way that I did it is about 20 years ago, I had this epiphany. I was like, why is a day 24 hours? And if I'm going to beat people, I'm aware. And I said this earlier, I'm aware I'm not the smartest guy in the world. In fact, my family, we've all done IQ tests. I'm not being falsely humble or false humility here. I have the lowest IQ of the four people in my family. Between my wife and my children, I have the lowest IQ. We've, we, we've taken the test enough times. <laughs> I'm constantly trying to catch them and I can't, right? So so I'm aware if I'm going to win, I got to outwork everybody. Right. I got to outwork. I got to find some advantage nobody else has. And my advantage was I had, had we've all had days where the first four hours, we got more in that first four hours than we did the whole day. We've all had days where we did more in a day than we did in a week. Well, how come that can't happen every day? And so it's all the way we bend and manipulate time. Everything is pacing. So if you think, if you and I were to race right now and the race was on the beach I'm looking at, it was a 50-yard race. We'd both get ready for the 50-yard race and we would run full speed. If the race was around Laguna Beach, our pace would be different. Much different. And so what happens is most people have a 24-hour day. So the race for their days around Laguna Beach and it affects your pace. And when you stack that pace day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and a dude like me is sprinting 50 yards, I'm gonna crush you in every area. So I decided my days aren't 24, my days are six hours. You could call them eight hours if you want, if you include sleep, but I look at sleep as not a part of my day. So my days are six hours, my first full day, and I think I'm conscious about a day's work between 6 a.m. and noon, that's a day. So I'm gonna get more done between 6 a.m. and noon than the average person does in their goofy 8 to 8 p.m. day. Then from noon to 6 p.m. is my second day, and I run that day. My next day is 6 p.m. to midnight. I get three days in a day. And so by the time your 24-hour day is done, I've had three days of work. And so at the end of the week, I've had, if we, if you, and I don't do it on Sunday, so I, six days. I get 18 days a week, okay? Most people get six if they don't work on Sundays, right? I'm going to crush you when we stack up a month, when we stack up a year, when we stack up three years. And I, without bragging, I will say my life is evidence of bending time, manipulating time, perception of time being different, because I've run many days now for almost 20 years. I, I love that. I, I actually, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that and apply that to my life because I, it's basically working in a flow and it's a hyper-focused six hours. 
busted out. You, I, I heard you in one of the videos when you were talking about it, you mentioned that in some of those six hours, correct me if I'm wrong, that's when you work out, then you go have fun, you hang out with your family, stuff like that, correct? Yes, and you also asked about quiet time. Absolutely, in those days is when I do those things. You also, you know, my quiet time is my, I have this theory about time also because life feels out of control for most people. And to some extent it is, but it's okay. So I started to think if I could control the first 30 minutes of my day and the last 30 minutes of my day, the probability or likelihood I have some measure of control over the middle of it is increased. I'm not always going to have it. So my first 30 minutes of my day are incredibly ritualized, as are the prior 30. I wrote about this in my book. I have it on my audios. And one of the things is I don't touch my phone in those 30 minutes either. Because what most people do is they wake up, grab their phone, biggest mistake in life you can make. Every human does it. And what's in that phone? Things to respond to. Problems, challenges, texts, emails. And you start, before you're even conscious, being in respond mode, reactionary mode, right? And so the, that dictates the terms of your life. And so for me, I'm like, I'm stopping this. The first 30 minutes of my day, I dictate the terms. And so it started at where I don't react and respond to everything in my life. I'm in charge of it. Me and the God I connect with those first 30 minutes and the God I'm connected with the last 30 minutes. And that's not to say we don't connect in the middle of the day, but we're really connecting then. And I go through my habits and routines during those 30 minutes. I am not someone who's going to react and respond through my life. But if every day of your life, the first thing you do is pick up that thing and start reacting and responding, you don't think your life, that's the context of your life? Of course it's the context of your life. And the more I've taught this, the hyper-successful people that I know in politics, business, and sports that I teach this to, they tell me it's the number one thing that's altered their life is that they don't touch their telephone the first 30 minutes, their smartphone, rather, in the last 30 minutes of their day. It's, it's revolutionized lives, just that one thing. I think that's terrific. Um, oh, I was going to ask you, dead gummit, I forgot. I had this question I wanted to ask. Uh, okay. uh, oh, I'm going to so, move my phone here. Hold on. Go ahead. Keep going. Okay. Of all of the influential people that you've worked with, and it's everything, politicians, it's athletes, like athlete, uh, just world changers. Of all of the people that you've met, what would be the most profound thing that you've learned from them? I'll give you two things. One is the thing that's good about them, and two is the thing that would shock most people, and it shocked me. Um, it's their ability to become obsessively focused on the task at hand. So the separator for a guy like Tom Brady, I should be careful how I say this because I, I love him. If you're a football fan, one of the guys I work with, eh, I don't really care if I shouldn't say his name. I'm, I work with a guy who is kind of a notorious backup quarterback in the league, but he's a well-known one. And um, a very gifted guy. In fact, more gifted than Brady. Bigger arm, bigger guy, just, just physically more gifted. It's Brady's ability to move everything out of the way and become hyper-focused in the moment and not allow distractions, diversions, challenges, family issues, the, the score of the game, injuries, anything to divert him from what he's doing. Um, whether you like Barack Obama or you like Donald Trump, and you probably don't like both, what you must admit about both of them is their incredible ability to be hyper-focused and laser-focused on what they do do so the elite achievers it's a different level of depth of focus my boxers the separator I have one boxer that I work with who's a world champion he repeatedly loses in his sparring sessions when I go watch him the people that he trains against beats him beat him it's bizarre and I always think he's gonna get crushed in this fight it's his ability when the cameras come on when he walks in the ring when he's got his robe on he transforms into a hyper-focused machine. This is true of the business people that I coach. It's just their ability to stay focused and relentless at a higher level, and the distractions and the noise are minimized. That's absolutely for sure. J-Lo, A-Rod, you name it, that's their ability is to be hyper-focused, and their work ethic is a separator. Most people think they work hard. If you knew how many hours Jen puts into one performance, it just blew my mind. I'm like, Jen, you've done this same routine 11 cities in a row. Can't you kind of walk through the 12th one? Absolutely not. It's five more hours. It's this. It's your finger wasn't bent. Like, it's unreal, the level of precision and detail and focus. The thing that surprised me 
was that most of them suffer from some form of what I'd, I'd call mild to severe depression. Blows most people away. And uh, it blew me away. And I'm talking about, I've had people talk about this openly on my show. Everyone from Andy Frisella, who's an influencer, to Stephanie McMahon, who uh, Steph, Steph runs the WWE and is a dear friend. She opened up about it on my show. Steve Weatherford, who's an NFL football player, bodybuilder, been to a Pro Bowl, won a Super Bowl. But almost all of them open up to me about this off camera. It's a shocking thing. I'd say 90%. And the two reasons I believe that happens is they believed erroneously early in their lives that if they would achieve material or financial or public success, that that would give them peace and happiness when we all know that doesn't do that. And yeah. so it's only a relationship with God that will give you that. And the second reason is, is that successful people always have a little bit of an incongruency. They hold themselves to such a high standard. They're never meeting it. They're never quite there. There's this separation of what they know they're capable of and where they're currently performing, which is what causes them to constantly improve. So that's a healthy thing. I have that. I have this. I'm never quite measuring up to what I'm capable of because when your results match or exceed your identity or exceed what you think you're capable of, you're getting ready to have a setback. You're going to cool it back down. That identity is like this thermostat on the ceiling right over here. It sets the temperature of your life. So if you believe you're a 75 degree or financially, and you start getting 80 and 85 degrees of financial success, you will unconsciously cool the, put the air conditioner on and cool your financial stuff back down to 75 degrees. Same with your body. If you believe you're an 80 degree or in your body, but now you're at 90 and 95 degrees of fitness, you will cool that thing back down and get that body back to what you believe you're worth and what you believe you deserve. Oh my and, gosh. And the reverse is also true. If it gets really bad and your body's at 50 degrees or your finances are broke, you're 50, de 50 degrees of results, but you believe you're a 75 degree, -er, You'll turn the heater on and get it back. You always do. The, the separator in life is can you constantly increase the temperature at which you believe you deserve and what you're worth? The top achievers are always increasing the thermostat temperature, and the current temperature never quite measures up. That's their separator. That's that's freaking amazing. <laughs> what is the what is the limiting? I don't even know if this is possible, but what is the limiting belief that you have to face like the most? You mean within myself? Yes, yeah, the limit, the noise, what, the chatter, the bullcrap lie, the, the, the enemy's lies. The, the enemy's lie to me is what you asked me earlier. I love your questions because it helps me. You're helping me. Um, I think the lie that I uh, tell myself the most is that if I'm, if I'm becoming super successful at somewhere else, it has to cost me something in another area. Mm. And that's a lie. It's not true. Uh, but that's the one for me where if I'm on the road and it's been four days and I'm at a speaking engagement, it happened a few weeks ago, I was in Toronto and my son had prom and I missed the prom. And uh, I thought, here you go, chasing all these accolades and you miss your son's prom. What the hell's wrong with you? But the truth is the speaking engagement was booked before I knew there was a prom. And I got back and I said, Max, I'm so sorry. My, my son's like, dad, are you kidding me? We're just at the Super Bowl. We just played Augusta National. I get all kinds of time with you. I didn't even think about it. Mom was there. It was great. It would have been goofy if you're, you know. So it's that thing that, man, if I really go achieve here, it's going to cost me somewhere else. And it's never been true, but I, every once in a while, allow myself to think it's possible. Okay. I like that answer. I love that. Now, you don't have to admit to what it is, but is there something, is there a goal that you have personally? That scares you a little. Uh, yeah, I, I'd like to. I'd like to transform the personal development industry. I'd like, and I, I'd like it to have a little bit more faith based because no one's really ever done that. And um, it, but, but what scares me about that, I think, is um, I'll tell you. Okay. Uh, what scares me about that is that I know I'm not a perfect example, and mm. and. I bet all men, oh, I, I, I bet many people struggle, although I've never asked someone else I should. It's, that's weird. I, I'm expressing this as I'm thinking it. That's okay. But I think that thing is that I, I know my deficiencies. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not as good and as an example in all these areas as people might think I am. And every person probably struggles with that, but the more public you become, the more 
eyeballs and ears are on you, probably the more you're aware of your weaknesses and deficiencies. And like I said earlier, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God, right? So that's probably my fear is that I'm going to let people down or one of the chinks in my armor will become more revealed as I get more successful and bigger. And so that's why I do work on myself. That's why I do pray. Uh, but that's, that's definitely in there somewhere as a fear. May I, can I, may I talk about myself for just a second? I'd love you to, you know that. <laughs> Please. So I have a whole lot going on. We don't have time for my backstory, but it's really, really dark. There's a reason why this show is called Gratitude Unfiltered. However, after a really bad relapse a year ago, God wow. came to me four days into a meth binge, wow. came to me and said, I'm, I'm not letting you go. This is going to suck, and I'm going to let you go through all of it, but I'm not letting you go. Mm. And this is after I gave my life to Christ a few years earlier, you know, still fighting, battling the demons and everything else, hadn't done all the work that I needed to do. But the one thing that I had not done was get to a place of surrender and just fully trusting. Mm. And as God came to me, one of the things that he said was, I want you to put a spotlight on your shadow world. And the original show that you were supposed to come on was Morning Gratitude. I killed that show because of that relapse, because I didn't feel like I was being authentic wow. enough. And, I, and, and really, God put it on my heart that not only do I need to, dis need to surrender and trust him, but I need to take this big, giant spotlight and put it right on my shadow world. So what that meant was, as I'm triggered by the enemy, as I'm fighting, uh, battling, and struggling with you know, the, cause I, for me, it was, um, so I have HIV just really quick. I, 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 which I'm now undetectable and healthy. I was sexually and physically abused, been in jail six times, been homeless, wrecked my life. All of it. What Christ saved me from is a, is I'm a miracle. Wow. And that said, one of the things that was the most scary was putting that spotlight on the shadow world, talking openly about, what it was like struggling with my sexuality, not knowing if I was bisexual or straight, because again, that happens when people are molested. The mental illness, borderline personality disorder, battling that. So when I go through those struggles, God put it on me and convinced me that if I put my spotlight on it, I'll be free. Praise so, God, that's amazing. I come on here and I, as I'm going under spiritual attacks, when the enemy is taunting me with visions of suicide, like very detailed, they did a show in January talking about it in real time, what the enemy was putting in my head. The enemy doesn't like that very much. So the point is this. Wow, that's one of the most powerful things I've ever heard. Oh. I'm telling you, like, you, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you. I just want to acknowledge you. First, I want to pray for you. Thank um, you. Um, secondly, I'm here for you if you ever go back to any of those places mentally, because you will, right? You'll have those thoughts, and I'm here. And third, um, that was one of the most powerful things I've heard. Like all this time we've been talking about doing this show, the gift was mine to receive today, not yours, just for that right there. So thank you. Uh, amazing. I don't even know how to respond. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> amazing. Um, the, the thing that I learned was that Jesus never expected us to be perfect. And I, I really feel like there is a breakthrough and a strengthening in your armor and your faith and your walk with Christ when you can talk about the struggles in real time, as opposed to acting like, oh, I've been, I don't battle with that anymore. I don't struggle with it. Sometimes talking about it in real time has this really special power that the Holy Spirit uses to set people free. So your fear, which I, I respect, and I, I, it's a healthy respect, but I just wanna encourage you that if you do feel led to do this, do it because the lives that it'll change somebody of your influence. Like I only dream. I, I dream to be of somebody of your stature and even bigger. To be honest with you, I want to be bigger than you. No, sure. fair. I sure. want to be bigger than you, but I want to do it in my own unfiltered walk with Christ. And I want to be that guy that's willing to talk about jail and what it was like to abuse drugs and to overdose and to, to overcome HIV, to overcome these things. I want to talk about it while standing in Christ and still be a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not about being the ego, but I also recognize that media is the most powerful medium in the world. And I had people, I, when I started this show, I had people back out, sponsors, people that were wanted to give me money to have me promote them. They all backed out because they heard my message and they were very uncomfortable with what I was talking about. And I said, screw it. 
Now I got to do it. I just have to trust God and do it the way he's guiding me and trust that he's going to open those doors. And you being here, Mr. Milet, is, is, is proof of, of a, it, it is God answering a lot of prayers. And so wow. I just really thank you. The answer to my prayer, your testimony is incredible. And, um, you know, I do think, you know, we've all heard the saying before, the bigger the test, the better the testimony. But I also think the fact that you're vulnerable about your test probably gives you a bigger opportunity to be bigger, if you will. Um, my testimony is pretty good, but it's it's nothing like what you just described. And uh, although I have a I, there's there's obviously more tests I go through than everybody knows. But sure. But I am pretty good about doing what you describe where I do let people in to know what some of them are. But you're remarkable, man. Like it, that moves me. I, I've done hundreds of these. And uh, I've done my own show where I've been moved, but very rarely when I'm being interviewed. Not very rarely, probably never have I heard something like that right there that moved me that much. So thank you. Uh, I, I, I don't even know why I, I just felt led to share, but I... I do. It's Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay, good point. Yeah. Good point. So uh, what was your... I, I, now I just want to ask something like, mm-hmm. like silly. Like when you were a kid, what was your favorite thing in the world to do? Play baseball. I was a baseball player. Huge, obsessed with baseball. Thought that's all I was ever going to do. Um, huge. I'm from Boston originally, but I grew up in Southern Cal. That's where I met my wife. But a huge Boston Red Sox fan. Um, uh, I played college baseball. I got drafted to play professional baseball. So I thought that's what I was going to do. I, I lived, ate, slept baseball as a kid. Um, it was my escape. I was pretty good. And so it was the one place where I wasn't getting bullied or picked on because I was real, real small. Um, real shy, super, super insecure, super shy, incredibly introverted kid. And so um, it was definitely baseball. That was, it's, I still love sports. I love all sports, but there's something about uh, baseball for me that's still dear to my heart. So that's an easy one. I like that. So, okay. What are, what are you most proud of, but okay, outside of your children, outside mm-hmm. of your faith and outside of your career, what are you most proud of that you've accomplished? Well, the, I've, I've done something in my philanthropic life that I don't talk about publicly because I just don't think I should. But there's some philanthropic work that I've done with children that was also spurred from my time at McKinley that I'm incredibly proud of. Um, and it makes me emotional to talk about it. But it's just one of those things that's best not uh, specifically bragged about. But I am... I feel like I've been a, I'm proud that I feel like I've been a pretty good steward of the blessings God's given me. Um, and I have helped people, you know, like I, I think not to the extent that I could or should, but I'm, I'm proud of that. And the other thing I give myself a lot of credit for, but everybody listening to this should give themselves more credit for. I'm going to say something about myself. It sounds like I'm bragging, but I want people to hear me say it. So they say it about themselves. I'm a, I'm a good man. I'm a good man. And what I mean by that is I intend to do good. Like I have good intentions ever since I was a little boy. My heart's good. Like I want to help people. I want to do good. I want to make people proud of me. And the vast majority of you listening or watching this, you do too. And you don't give yourself any credit for that. There's a huge power to just intention the power of intention. And so I'm proud that I've always intended to do good. I've very rarely, not never, but very rarely in my life intended to do harm to another person. I've done harm to other people, typically because I'm an idiot or I'm sinning, but it wasn't intentional. You know, I didn't go, I'm out to get them or I'm out to, you know, steal from them or screw them. I remember the first time I stole as a little boy, I stole my little buddy's watch. And I remember coming home and I was wearing the watch and I told my mom that he gave it to me. And my dad immediately knew he didn't give you that watch. And I had to walk back down there. And I remember the shame of just, I intended to steal this watch from this kid. You know, and I didn't like how that felt. I've had moments like that in my life where I've intended to do wrong or bad, but not that many. And most of you haven't either. And most of you are really good people. And you don't give yourself enough credit. You're constantly beating yourself up about what you've not done, what you've not achieved. And that's going to be a pattern you're going to keep repeating. You keep telling yourself these things about you, you're going to reinforce it because it's your thermostat setting. My thermostat setting, part of that setting for me is I'm a good man. I'm a good man. I'm not a perfect man, but I'm a good man. And I want to do good in the world. And I'm proud of that. And so should most of you be proud of that. 
That's beautiful. Yeah. So what, where do you go from here? You've got, you know, you're speaking all over the world. I mean, I'm sure you've made some movie appearances by now, right? Yeah, yeah I have. And um, my, where I'm going, I can tell you, is that I want to take my message to other platforms. So I am working with some people. We're real close to my show, a show I'm doing on Netflix, which would reach, <clears throat> which would reach more people. And so, because um, I've only been on social media about 20 months. And so all of this more public version of me is new to me, and I'm still becoming comfortable with it. But I do, uh, it looks like I'm going to be doing something there um, that's somewhat significant. And then I, I don't want to be the person that's an influencer, if you will. That's uh, Tony created a unique model where he was kind of the guy for all these years. And then there was really nobody else. I don't want to be the guy. I want to be the guy who helps lift up the guys and the ladies. Yeah, well, I want to be a, a king and queen maker, not the king or the queen. It's not, it, it's just, it's because I, I have a life outside of this. I have multiple businesses that I run. I have a family. I'm pushing 50 years old. And so there's, I want to lift other people up. That's why I have my show. That's what I'm going to begin to do more of. And so the next level for me is I'd love for entrepreneurs to become the great force for good in the world I know they're capable of. I really believe entrepreneurs are what can change the world. And I don't mean to be on a soapbox, but I'll tell you, it certainly isn't going to be one of these political parties that's going to change the world. No. Right. I, I don't think I don't even think the most devout members of the Democrat or Republican Party believe that crap anymore. So it's certainly not going to be a political party that's going to change the world. It's certainly not going to be of which I, I'm a member of neither. I'm incredibly socially liberal. I'm very fiscally conservative. So I fit into no party. Um, uh, so and I, I, I just shrunk my audience down by 90 percent right there, I'm sure. But that's just a fact about me. So I uh, I don't believe it's political parties. The media certainly doesn't contribute to bringing the world together. Churches are wonderful, but people see churches coming miles away. Right. And so is there a force for good in the world that can reach millions and millions of people with a message of improvement and faith and strength and contribution and and uh, identity and. And, and a difference for other people and transferring energy and bringing people together from all walks of life. And for me, that's entrepreneurs and that's probably somebody like me and the group of people I'd like to elevate. And so I'd love when I'm done doing this, you know, 50 years from now, that, um, the, that the consciousness of the world is better. And that seems like a big deal, but my team knows it. The people around me know it. I want billions of people to hear these messages about changing the world and changing our own lives. And so that's probably you know, where I'm going in terms of the platform is Netflix to start, but it could be, you know, in 10 years, five years, Instagram might not exist. Netflix might not exist. There'll be holograms all over the place. And, and so who knows what the methodology of the transfer will be, but I'd like to be involved in doing it. I love that. Do you, so I know you're a golfer. Do you ever play wolf? I play wolf quite a bit. Yeah. That's my game. That's is the only, really? Oh, I played competitive golf go, uh, growing up. I was a golfer and played football. Okay. And uh, yeah, I chose to play golf like an idiot because let's you know back play. then golf wasn't cool. Let's play together. Do I know? Let you and I play. I'd love to. Uh, we'll do that. I'm terrible now. I was a. I'll give you a funny story about golf real quick. Uh, you're gonna laugh. This will tell you how bad I am right now. I shot the worst score that I've ever recorded uh, on Easter Sunday after church. My son and I went and played. And I shot 97 on Easter Sunday. I could not hit a ball in the fairway. I, I lost 14 golf balls that day. And when I posted my score, this is so funny. When I posted my score, it showed me my score from two Easter's ago. You know, when you post it in the computer? Yeah. And two Easter's ago, I shot 67. And I was, a, I was a two handicap then, but I had a good day. And my son said, Dad, what happened since that Easter and this Easter? And he goes, you know what happened? That was April. In May, you started on Instagram two years ago. <laughs> so you can take a direct line to me becoming a public person in my golf game going to crap because I just don't play anymore. I'm not a good enough player where if I don't play regularly. So I went from probably playing 50 rounds a year to playing five. I and my parents, when I was seven, eight years old, would drop me off at the country club, and hmm. the country club basically raised me. And so I and my and I got pretty good at golf. So my father around the age of 13, 14, would have me play in his wolf group. So as I'm playing competitively, I had no interest in the, in the trophy. Like, oh, trophy? I, let's, play, let's play $5 wolf. <laughs> I'm 13 years old. And then, of course, when you do the math of $5 wolf, you have people losing like $700, which I had. 
Oh my gosh. So yeah, I've, I, I grew up, my father played wolf up until he died. In fact, he had, um, he had melanoma and it was, he had tumors all over his head and his brain. So I, I, I thought my heart goes out to you and your father Thank and you. what he's dealing with. But my dad until his like dying days was still playing wolf. That'll be my dad. My first wolf game, by the way, God bless your dad. I'll tell you a really funny story. I played wolf. I, I don't like to admit when I don't know something. So this is not name dropping, but the first time I played wolf was about five years ago. And Elway, John Elway was in that group. And um, I didn't understand the game, and we were playing like $400 Wolf. I'm like, okay, the worst I could do is lose $400. I don't understand the game. I'm the type of dude at the end where I'm like, just tell me what I owe. Oh, and when he plays on the 18th hole, you can get all your money back on the 18th hole. So I asked on the 18th hole, I said, am I up or down? They're laughing because I don't even know how the game was played. And they're like, you're down. I go, okay, so I can play to get my money back on the last hole, right? They said, yes. I said, okay, how much am I down? They're like, you're down $11,000. I'm like, what? $11,000? Who carries that much money with them? I'm like, no, we take checks. You're fine, man. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And fortunately, the last hole, I was the only one not to go out of bounds, and I ended up breaking even. So, But I was terrified. All of you listening, if you don't know golf, someone tries to get you into Wolf, make sure it's $5 Wolf. And not four hundred dollar wolf, or even fifty cent wolf. I yeah, mean, that's probably better. That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Don't right. make your feelings hurt. I mean, yeah, when my dad was playing, it was back when the oil boom in Oklahoma mm. and Texas. So they're playing like ridiculous hundred dollar wolf. People were getting their feelings hurt. They had a guy commit suicide. I mean, it was. It, it just it got bloody. That's the one thing about golf. I tell my friends all the time. I don't want to lose <laughs> that kind of money to you. And I don't really want to win that much money from my friends either. I don't like how that feels. I want to win, but there's an amount of money that I feel uncomfortable with exchanging with anybody that I care about. And I don't, I'm not sure what the number is, but anything above, I don't know, a thousand bucks or something, that's way too much. And that's to this day where most of me and my friends could afford that bet. I still don't like doing it. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to play Wolf with you. I haven't played. I haven't played in about a year and a half, but I'd still love to play. And you can and get I'm me right competitive, now. So I'm, I'm, money I'm, from I'm you. Talk trash to you. Okay. You could you get a lot of money out of me right now. I'm terrible. <laughs> I better I better shut my mouth and start practicing. Well, listen, Mister Twilight, I am so grateful that you. you came on today. Um, okay. And for coming on the show, I'm going to give you a giraffe. Really? Yeah. Um, so what are you going to do with the giraffe? I don't know. I don't know where I would put it. My ceilings are pretty low in here. <laughs> I, thought, I haven't asked that question in like a year, so I figured I'd do it for giggles for some of the old audience here. But uh, anyway, um, listen, I thank you. This has been – I can't wait to go back and rewatch it because you dropped so many just valuable nuggets for people and, and how to really live their best life. And just thank you so much, man. Pleasure is mine. You're remarkable. Thank you so much for the time. God thank bless you, brother. God bless you. Man. I'm going to dial into my four o'clock now, but thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye. Can I say holy crap? If you guys just now join, uh, for those of you watching live and not listening on the podcast or radio or watching on the binge network, watch that whole thing. I thought he was in a no-show. I was so nervous, I was sweating. I was sweating, I'm not gonna lie. I was sweating under this jacket, thinking, oh no, he's going to bail. And we talked about Jesus. I talked about Jesus and the Holy Spirit with Ed Milet. God is so good. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, holy crap is right, Zenfu. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much. Brian, good to see you, my man. Thank you for watching. Yeah, that was. He was so good. And I, I'm not even like, no ego. Ed Milet came on here and was vulnerable. He was vulnerable. And he was real. And he was authentic. How inspiring is that? Like, I'm not, like, Obviously, I wear my faith on my sleeve. I talk about Jesus all the time. I talk about what Christ saved me from. But people at a certain level abandon the idea of giving credit to Jesus or God for anything. He was just blatant. So awesome. Can you imagine if 
Ed Milet became a pastor. How amazing. Thank you, Cheryl. Good to see you. Thank you, Jennifer, for coming. Oh, yeah, I'm, I am truly, he's incredible. Thank you very much, Brian. Um, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining. Um, yeah, if you're just now joining, watch the whole thing. He was incredible. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for the support. Uh, thank you for making this special. Um, Cheryl, thank you, love. Thank you so much. Wait. Um, be sure to listen to that song by Laurel Dangle, you say. Okay, well, who else was here? Uh, big hugs to you, Carrie. Thank you. Um, again, thank you, Brian. Wow, Elizabeth, good to see you, my friend. Uh, yeah. I just, I, I'm just in complete gratitude. I have no words. God bless you guys. Thank you. Good night.